Hi, everybody. This is God's Hot for the Sad Truth. Today, I have Michal Cutler Wunsch. I had to practice that one or two times to get it right, but apparently my pronunciation is not too bad. She is the uh, uh, Israeli special envoy to combat anti-Semitism. That strikes me as a very, very large job. And if she's able to actually succeed at that, then uh, she should be booking her trip to Stockholm to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. But short of that, bon courage, as we say in French. Uh, she's also a lawyer by training, uh, did an LLM, a master's in law at one of my alma maters at McGill, and is now pursuing a PhD uh, in uh, issues that I've talked about often, you know, freedom of speech and so on. Uh, anything else you want to add quickly, Michal, before we delve into some difficult subjects? Yeah, no, and just, uh, you know, my hometown of Montreal, my second home that I love so dearly, first home, second home, uh, and I miss this season probably most than any others, and there are days that in this crazy reality, I miss them even more. Yeah, I I always scoff at someone who says they miss the seasons from the comfort of a warm place. I understand that Israel is going through a very difficult period right now, uh, but, uh, you know, Someone who lives in Southern California should not utter such comments. Someone who lives in Ranana, Israel, should not, because winter is coming and it's going to befall me soon. I know, I know. I remember it well. It's just the leaves, the foliage that I miss. Very true. <laughs> you're, you're right. Uh, okay, so maybe we could start with just an overview of where we are in the current unfolding tragedy. Anything that you could tell us? You're currently in Israel, correct? I am in Israel, God. Uh, three of four of my children are currently enlisted um, into the army. And uh, it's very important for me that your listeners understand um, there is not one home that is not enlisted, one family, one neighborhood, one city that has not been impacted by what has befallen the state of Israel as the singular most tragic few days that we've experienced, I think, in the history of the state of Israel in this really existential war. And, you know, it's it's really hard for Israelis to make that accessible because we have to continue. Um, it is our children on the front lines that we send to battle to protect our borders and our homes. And so we have to remain resilient. Um, and it is our younger children that are watching us. And then we become that civil society, each one in whatever it is that they do in the hospitals and in schools and on the streets and grocery stores. Um, that enables uh, the front lines. And what's more important, and I think in this particular um, state of war that Israel is in, is that there is no differentiation between the front line and what we would call, you know, uh, home front. Um, everything has become the front line. I'll share that at 6.30 in the morning on Shabbat morning, which was also Simchat Torah, um, 6.30 in the morning, we were awakened by blaring sirens. Um, and in sort of that Israeli resiliency, we said, well, terror is not going to, you know, stop us from going to celebrate Simchat Torah. And I remind us all that, you know, in thousands of years of Jewish history, we didn't have a state to call our own. We didn't have independence. We certainly didn't have an army that could defend our boundaries, our borders, and our citizens. Um, and so we went to synagogue to celebrate, and it was a very, very um, eerie feeling 50 years after the Yom Kippur War, when one by one, kids, uh, husbands, wives, came to say goodbye to their families because they'd been called up. And some people brought a phone and some people didn't. And, you know, sort of news creeps in. And by the time we were done our prayers, it was clear that something was unfolding of a magnitude 
that we will not be able to even comprehend. And I just turned off the news in order to speak to you. And only now uh, the first real images are coming to Israelis um, who regard human life and cherish human life at such value that the pictures are not shown um, in order to protect the dignity of the dead. But what, what we were shown tonight is what happened in Yishuvim, in Kibbutzim, that entire families were burned in their own homes by Hamas genocidal terrorists that entered, that infiltrated by air, by sea, by land. Um, and it was hours before the army could get to them fighting these Hamas terrorists. Um, uh, there are scenes that are too terrible to imagine, but not too terrible to have happened that occurred in the last few days. And um, more Israeli Jews were murdered in one single day than in the entire history of the state of Israel, 75 years. So including all the previous wars, 48, 56, 67, 73, that was the, the bloodiest day? The bloodiest day. Wow. The bloodiest day in Israel's history, God. Hundreds murdered, butchered, maimed, raped in ways that are awful. Babies ripped out of their parents' arms, mothers' arms, parents hiding 10-month-old twins in the electric cupboard, um, butchered to death, and the babies found maybe 48 hours later crying, orphaned from their parents. Um, a grandmother uh, uh, on her Facebook feed so that that's how her daughter and granddaughter saw her murdered. Um, terrorists um, with no regard for anything that we cherish and value in terms of life and liberty. Um, the scenes are really awful. And the um, idea that this happened in what is the Jewish nation state, sovereign Jewish nation state, whose borders were infiltrated in this way, whose sovereignty was undermined in this way, war crimes and crimes against humanity. I haven't even spoken about the hundreds that were abducted. We don't know if they're dead or alive, we don't know where they are. Um, there are uh, citizens of foreign countries, Canada included, the United States, Canada, Argentina, Germany. Uh, some we know already are dead. Some we know nothing about. Um, a tragedy of a magnitude that it's important to me that I impress upon you. As I drove my daughter back to her base tonight, um, there are uh, checkpoints in the entrance of every city um, for concern of infiltration of terrorists that are walking around the country, possibly in army uniforms that they took off the soldiers that they butchered. Um, and uh, the entire country is um, is at war. But couple of questions, a couple of threads I want to pursue. In Israel, there are, I think, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, roughly 20% non-Jews that are Israeli citizens. What from the very, I mean, this just happened a few days ago, so everything is still very raw, but can you tell us about what's the dynamic between fellow Israeli citizens, equal citizens, but who some might be Jewish, others who may not, are, do, do you get the sense that they are as angry and as revolted by this, or do the typical tribal lines manifest themselves as we might expect? So we have to remember um, that some of those communities, for example, Druze, serve in Israel's army at a higher percentage rate than any other community in this country. They are standing side by side with Jews fighting on the front lines and on the home front command. There is no difference um, and that's very important to remember. There are Christian Arabs and there are Muslim Arabs. 
that are enlisted into the military, volunteering, fighting side by side. And we have to remember that. And we have to know that there are opportunities for individuals um, to really stand together and band together, by the way, in grocery stores, in hospitals, in pharmacies, um, in all of the emergency care that we receive. And there are thousands in all of Israel's hospitals where Jewish and Arab nurses and doctors and radiologists work side by side by side. This is something that is not accessible to most people in the world and probably incomprehensible um, to most. And it is something um, of a dissonance um, to Israel's own citizens. I'd say that there is internal Arab leadership um, that is calling for a, um, a clear uh, rebuke, condemnation of what is genocidal, barbaric, savage, murderous, anti-Semitic, um, uh, uh, un unacceptable acts. And there are some clear voices. There are some much less clear voices, including in Israel's Knesset, that are using this opportunity to pounce on legitimating or finding reasons for, um, you know, uh, accusing Israel of accusations that not only fueled but are fueled by but fuel anti-Semitic hate, including outside of Israel, for example, accusing Israel of apartheid and so on, um, falsely, obviously. Um, but I would say that the majority of citizens, when we look left and right, are standing side by side, united by the understanding. And by the way, these genocidal terrorists, they didn't differentiate between who was standing in their way. We know foreign citizens were taken, abducted, murdered, Thai citizens that were working down south um, in agriculture. We know that they have no regard for any life. We know that they use their own civilians as human shields as they hide beneath hospitals, beneath mosques, beneath schools. In fact, the state of Israel has issued pleas for civilians to leave the areas in Gaza through a humanitarian corridor and take shelter. And Hamas has actually issued statements barring them from doing so, encouraging them not to do so, if you will, in much what we remember, although not many of the, our listeners may know, but that's precisely what happened in what the Palestinians referred to as the Nakba. So those that could leave did not leave. Those that could choose sides between what we now know, the entire world knows, is savagery, the likes of which, you know, 9-11 showed the United States what ISIS was and is sponsored by a genocidal terror regime in Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, many other proxies. We realize now that or I would hope we realize now that that paradigm that if we just appease terror, maybe they'll play nice. We have to remember that terror does not play nice. And there are no two sides to this equation where when things turn around and that very same genocidal terror organization without regard for human life will use the pictures that will emerge from Gaza because they're preventing civilians from leaving. We have to remember that there is no moral equivalency between a democratic country that not only has the right to, as everybody has given us the right to, but has the duty and responsibility to defend her citizens and her borders as a sovereign country. We're going to have to remember that in the coming days, that that paradigm is irrelevant. And the lines in the quicksand are now between civilization, humanity, and a depraved, savage, genocidal, terror, 
um, multi-organizations, um, of which Hamas is but one. So two two quick questions uh, of perhaps, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say failure because you, you don't want to put blame, but I've often heard in the last few days for people asking me, well, what do you think are the reasons why, you know, the, you know, the legendary, you know, information services of Israel weren't able to pick that up. So let's quickly talk about that. Then I want to talk about actually a, a more, a larger existential failure, if I, if I can put it that way, what are do you, are you able to speak as to why this happened or, or is it the old story of they just have to be on point once, whereas we have to be correct 100% of the time. And so at some point, there's going to be a failure. That's just the statistical reality of life. So I think it's a combination of things, God, actually, thank you for that question. I'll say, um, and this is really important, at the moment, most of us are not even going there in our minds. We are fighting for our lives. Right. We have children fighting for their lives, for our lives, protecting us. We have reservists, as I said, in every home. And every home has received a knock at the door to announced to the family that someone dear to them has been killed, murdered, bludgeoned to death, abducted. So nobody at the moment in survival mode is really, at least those of us that are not in political spheres, are allowing ourselves to even go there. And it's a very important piece. So we first have to win this war. And then there will be many commissions of inquiry, the likes of which post Yom Kippur, and we're 50 years after Yom Kippur, I think, um, you know, I don't like comparisons because I think we make the mistake and, you know, sort of look at the future and look at the past and think that that's what's happening in the present and prepare for the future based on the past. Irrelevant. Whole new set of facts. But the likes of which may very well prove to be a kind of failure that we saw in the Yom Kippur War in the understanding and in the assessment of the situation around us, perhaps even because of what I just said, because we look at the past rather than learn from the past and identify the challenges of the present in order to, um, you know, that never again prospect of commitment looks to the future. It doesn't look to the past. It learns from the past, but has to diagnose the, the challenges in the present. I will add one piece, um, and that's from my um, many years, not only as an MK, but before entering Knesset, actually, of, um, I'd say, uh, pleading the case of two deceased soldiers and two civilians that have been held in Gaza for over nine years in standing violation of international law and morality. We have two deceased soldiers, Hadar Golden and Aron Shaul, and two civilians, actually, Avera Mangisto and Hashem Asayed, and Most people don't know those names. And the reason is that they've been held in a nine plus year standing violation of international law of resolution 2474 of any kind of laws of war that we know of, except that they've been left there for over nine years. And and what I mean by that is, you know, sometimes there are paradigms in which we are trapped. And when I say that the paradigm collapsed, it's the paradigm that um, I think that in many ways, guided Israel's um, decision-making. By the way, we're also 30 years after Oslo in signing Oslo, right? That maybe we can just make peace. And after we just make peace, we'll see what the terms or negotiate the terms of that peace agreement. And at the end of that, we'll check if they actually recognize our right to exist. Well, that paradigm has collapsed. And that paradigm has collapsed in such a way that I don't think that we can ever go back to it. And in many ways, it's tragic that this is the cost of the paradigm in which I think decision makers and perhaps military officials were in many ways trapped. Because imagine 
when you send people to die and you do so based on certain assumptions and those assumptions prove to be so colossally wrong you are the last person that can let go of those faulty assumptions because the implication is that you have sent people to die based on a false assumption this false assumption this paradigm can no longer return there are more people in israel than understand that understand it than ever before we've had moments where you know post oslo i think the israeli um sort of general public had a big aha moment this is a bigger aha moment the understanding that antisemitism that virulent toxic virus ever mutating from barring the individual jew from an equal place in society to barring the jewish nation state to an equal from an equal place among the nations the understanding that that toxic antisemitism is the first um sign i'd say that enables us to understand if whoever it is that we're talking to negotiating peace recognizes our very right to exist as what we were founded to be the jewish nation state of an indigenous people returned after millennia of exile and persecution committed to equality we can't skip over that part when we negotiate peace and the understanding that that virulent antisemitism rings those bells very loudly not just for the genocidal terrorist terrorist organization savages that launched this war but actually across the board with anybody that the state of Israel ever seeks to um negotiate the terms of peace with and actually the Abraham accords lent us an incredible lens on that and i was you know i'd say honored enough to be a member of Knesset when we signed those Abraham accords and what is historic about the Abraham accords is that they have the potential only the potential we have to realize the potential for it to actually be they have the potential of flipping the paradigm from the three nose of khartoum that said stipulated very quickly uh, very clearly excuse me war after war after war were lost and then in another war that was waged on the state of israel's very existence this unconventional war for public opinion the three nos of khartoum said no to recognition of israel no to negotiation with israel no to peace with israel well the abraham accords and the pivot from rejectionism annihilationism rejection denial of jewish connection to this land the pivot from that rejectionism to normalization is anchored in this inherent paradigmal shift to the three yeses in that order yes to recognition of israel as what it was founded to be the nation state of the jewish people yes to negotiation with that nation state and ultimately paving the path to yes to peace that paves the path for peace with all peoples including theoretically the palestinians but it can't possibly pave the path to whoever denies any possibility of jewish existence and you know the right to jewish self-determination in the state of israel to which according to the current leadership of the palestinians abu mazen not only is he a holocaust denier but he denies any connection of jews to the state of israel unesco just supported him by declaring jericho a palestinian heritage site and the severance of any connection to this land ultimately disenables any possibility of any kind of um uh coexistence with any of the peoples in our region So a uh, second issue that I was going to raise which I guess you kind of touched upon when you mentioned antisemitism the informational war I feel so when you when you think about Israel you think of the courageous commandos the fighters you think about Mossad you think about the, the things that the air force pilots can do but you never imagine that in the war of information Israel is doing a good job and that's certainly been my 
estimation of things. As a professor of 30 years who navigates in the ecosystem of the universities, I can assure you that uh, the pro-Israel versus pro-Arab positions is very lopsided. And so that the average person who would otherwise know nothing about the story is very much going to be influenced positively towards the Palestinian cons, and much less so towards Israel. So, okay, so that's one issue. Secondly, on, on the issue of anti-Semitism, while it might be true that the current crisis deals with the, the, the recognition of Israel and the ancestral rights of the Jews to be in that land and so on, I think that the ultimate root of anti-Semitism, well, not I think, I know, I come from Lebanon. Arabic is my mother tongue. So I could perhaps teach the Israelis one or two things. Uh the Jew hatred, Jew, Jew haters, in a sense, view Israel as a God-given thing because it now allows me to channel my hate as a story of a territory battle. Oh, I love the Jews. I just hate Zionists. But the reality is that from everything that I've experienced in my life and everything that I know about all of the ideolo ideologies at play, Israel could cease to exist tomorrow, and the fundamental identifying hatred of the Jews would remain with equal alacrity, with equal strength. So it's not a battle just as to whether Jericho, there is a link of the Jews to Jericho. It's that the Jew is an existential problem. And that reality is rooted very deeply in theological doctrines. So now, having said all this, you as the special envoy of Israel to combat anti-Semitism, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I'll just share with you that in theory, I would love to be out of a job. And in practice, we know that I'm in a growth industry. <laughs> it makes me very sad. And I, I said to somebody not long ago, I'm devastated to be appointed to this role, and I'm even more devastated to be joining a coalition of special envoys for combating anti-Semitism, because they're necessary, because we see the rise in anti-Semitism. And to touch upon some of the important points that you raised, God, you know, 850,000 Jews from Arab Iran. I know where you're going with this. Yes, go ahead. We understand very well that we're ethnically cleansed from those Arab lands and Iran for that very same reason that you're absolutely hitting upon and touching upon now. We know the intersection between the Mufti and Nazism and Hitler. We understand very well that that historic piece has not really gone away. In fact, it's part of the mutation, and here is the craziest part for me. It's part of the mutation of anti-Semitism that intersects directly with what's regarded as progress in the most liberal, self-defining, shouldn't call them liberal, because I believe that they've actually co-opted and weaponized liberal values, which I'm a firm believer in, yeah. but in fact, intersects with the same language and the same words in protests we see right now responding to this massacre and these genocidal murderers supporting, legitimizing, justifying. And they intersect at the craziest place, protests in New York and in Australia that are holding up the same banners and the same signs and the same hashtags and the same memes if we talk about social media, because we haven't even talked about what happens in the social media age but holding up the same signs as those that we see 
in Ivy League universities. Yeah. That's unbelievable. That intersection, that moment in time, this historic junction and intersection, in many ways, I believe, actually showcases where this is not just about Jews. And it's not just about Israel. This is about the foundational principles of all those societies that cherish those foundational principles of life and of liberty, all of those liberal values that they are, you know, uh, entrusted and committed to uphold, promote and protect. And so that intersection of what you've described as what we see from systematic and systemic, if you will, um, radicalized Islam and the way that it has um, manifested in this deep anti-Semitism, which I am sure was there in, you know, including in the Farhud in Iraq, where my grandfather is from. And what we see in New York City and what we see at Harvard University with the same messaging, and here is the greatest irony, or maybe not, peddling the same message exactly as Soviet propaganda of Zionism as racism in 1975 UN resolution of the 2001 Durban conference against racism turned an anti-Semitic hate fest that basically was, let's say, the first sort of um, grand entry of Israel as an apartheid state that then led to Israel apartheid weeks on every single campus. And it's that intersection that to me also doesn't only pose a challenge, but is a, but an opportunity, much like I spoke about in terms of the Abraham Accords. Look, I'm getting messages from Abraham Accord, from people in the Abraham Accords countries and people that haven't joined the Abraham Accord countries, individuals that are leaning in and showing up and, and taking a stand. And by the way, some of them are also exposing themselves on social media, which to me is an incredible show of, of courage and of moral clarity calling out very clearly this genocidal terrorism and absolutely denouncing the, um, I'd say, Islamic or jihadic, jihadist um, um, anti-Semitic um, propellant of, the, of these massacres that we've experienced in the last few days. In much the same way, I would argue that we have not only the ability, but the responsibility to understand that what's happening on universities across North America and the rest of the world but across North America, because we're speaking and you're sitting in Canada, actually undermines precisely what universities were meant to not only enable students to reflect about and through all kinds of processes, which we can get into a little bit of my doctor own doctoral dissertation on free speech on university campuses and the idea of regulating speech on university campuses and where that has taken us. Um, the intersecting issues are so deep that in many ways, I think that this is a moment of reckoning for the entire free world um, and for all societies, uh, even if they're not democratic. As I said, I've had, you know, messages and, you know, uh, uh, leaders from countries of the Abraham Accords that may not be democracies, but are very much committed or trying to um, commit themselves to uh principles of life and liberty and create a better future for their children and grandchildren and see that as a priority. Yeah. So we're not only in a moment of challenge, but in a moment of opportunity. You, you know, I don't, I mean, I've talked about this many, many times, but I truly don't think that the average Westerner, unless they are, you know, a virulent anti-Semite appreciates 
the extent to which the DNA fabric of the Middle East is built on Jew hatred. So in 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 my two books ago, in the Parasitic Mind, in chapter one, where I talk about my my background in Lebanon, I explained that even in quote progressive tolerant Lebanon, it's tolerant until it isn't. Right, that's how it always happens. You're healthy until you drop dead from a heart attack. So so in in progressive tolerant Lebanon, everything was viewed through the prism of it's the fault of the Jews. It rained today, damn Jews. It's too hot today, damn Jews. My wife cheated on me. Who put that idea in her head? It's the Jew, it, right? It, everything is related to the Jew. Now, when you live within that society, often people don't uh, monitor what they say because first of all, they may not necessarily know that you are Jewish. And so- And it's mainstream. They, it's, it's so mainstream. It is so banal. It is, if you want to insult someone, you say, well, what are you, a Jew, right? So it's pervasive in the definition of one's identity. For me to be X, I have to hate the Jew. It's part of the foundation of who I am. Now, that doesn't mean that every member of those societies feels that. I All of my friends were either Christian or Muslim. I mean, of course, they were also Jewish friends, but most of them, given that I grew up in Lebanon, were not Jewish and they were lovely. But it, the idea is, what's the zeitgeist? What's going around in the air? What what's what's permeating through every conversation? The damn Jew. It's not the Israelis. It's the Jew, right? In Sydney right now, they didn't say gas the Israelis. They said gas the Jews. So it's definitional. It's visceral. It defines my identity. The Jew does have horns if you just scratch. He's so diabolical that he could even hide those horns. So how could someone like you come in and say, all right, let's combat anti-Semitism since it seems to be the most eternal hate that exists in the history of mankind? So... You know, Gad, the way I think about it is how could someone like me not? Fair enough. Because, you know, I, I mentioned before that as those sirens blared um, when we were celebrating Simchat Torah, uh, all Jews had for thousands of years was a book. By the time Simchat Torah made its way around the world, all we had to celebrate was a book. We had no country, no independence, no sovereignty, no ability to defend ourselves. I'm sitting here in the miracle that is the 75-year young state of Israel, and you're sitting there in Canada, and I am sitting in a place that is at the moment war-torn, and you are sitting in a place where we had the illusion of relative safety and Maybe even in Canada, there could be a turning point where there won't be safety for Jews. Oh, before you go on, sorry to interrupt you. Please forgive me because I'm going to support what you just said. Uh, When my son now wants to go play at the soccer field, hey, son, are you sure you want to be wearing that uh, Star of David? Number one. Number two, as this Israel-Hamas war was ramping up and, you know, I wasn't going to keep quiet, although I've received many threats in the past. My wife said, are, are you sure, given where you work at university, you want to put that extra uh, safety stress on yourself? So 
21st century Canadian professor at a Canadian university has to at least think about modulating what he says or thinks, lest they will come for me. Go on. So how could we not, God? How can we not, when we know what our people has endured for millennia, when we understand, you know, I often speak of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, and why it is so critical if you're going to be able to identify and combat anti-Semitism anywhere, at university, in cities, in countries, on social media. Why is it critical? And why, as a result of a long democratic process, have 40 countries adopted it, 40 plus countries, a thousand plus entities adopted it? Now we can talk about implementation, but an adoption is a first step. If you don't define that ever mutating ancient hate that we have just discussed, if you don't define it comprehensively, and you know, now everybody knows how viruses mutate because we're post-COVID, you know that new strains develop. And you know that actually, if you create some sort of a vaccine for the old strain, that's not going to work for the new strain. The new strain will go viral. And it will take over and it will, if you allow it to fester and permeate your society, it will kill. And we have this new strain of anti-Semitism and it is identified in the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism as the demonization and the delegitimization and double standards towards the state of Israel. Now, what does that say to us? Exactly what you just shared with me about your experience as a young boy in Lebanon, the dehumanization of the individual Jew the delegitimization of the individual of the individual Jew and the double standard applied to the individual Jew. That is what has fueled, that is the mechanism that has fueled and enabled anti-Semitism right through the ages, whether it was that we were targeted for our religion, for our for when when science was the guiding principle for our race, so to speak, according to the Nazis, when nationality was the you know guiding principle, guiding nations for our nation state, Israel. And I'll add one more piece, which is for my area sort of of expertise and research. When human rights became the secular religion, if you will, of our times, the guiding principle around which we organize our conversations, when human rights became that religion of our times, then human rights were co-opted and weaponized. And you know, Robert Bernstein, who founded Human Rights Watch, he couldn't believe his eyes after coming back and, you know, realizing that human rights were his foundational principles were the only way to ensure the prospective commitment of never again. Never again, not looking to the past because you can't prevent the Holocaust, but never again looking to the future. And when those human rights principles, institutions, organizations, including his own, by the way, Human Rights Watch, were co-opted and weaponized to demonize, delegitimize, and apply double standards, not to the individual Jew, to the Jewish nation state, how convenient. And we as Jews ourselves didn't recognize that mutation of anti-Semitism and allowed to sever that understanding that as a people, it doesn't matter if it's the individual Jew or the Jewish nation state that's targeted, that's barred from an equal place, whether in society or in the family of nations then this is a wake-up call for us as a people as well. But how can we not? And, and on the, how can we not? I have to quote the late Rabbi Sachs, um, who differentiated between hope and optimism in the following way. He said, optimism is a very passive virtue, whereas hope is a very active one. 
It takes no courage at all to be an optimist, but a great deal of courage to have hope. So active courage is the only way that we can have hope, which is what has kept our people alive for thousands of years. And I remind us is also the national anthem of our nation state of Israel, Hatikva. And so how can we not? How can we, after our grandparents and great-grandparents, could have only dreamed that we'd be sitting, having this conversation, me and Ranana Israel, under fire, and you in Canada in Concordia, under a different kind of fire in that war for public opinion, how can we not but fight for the continuity and continued existence of our people, 15 million in the entire world? How can we not? Do you feel that, so continuing with the, you know, the virus mutating analogy, do you feel that in the same way that, you know, you could come up with a vaccine that eradicates a, a, a virus, you know, say polio, uh, do you feel, oh, I think, I believe by a Jewish scientist, right? Uh, so do you, do you feel that there could be, and again, notwithstanding the distinction between hope and optimism, so, so activate whichever mechanism you need to activate uh could we ever have a vaccine that removes anti-semitism from the ecosystem now notwithstanding the fact that the that the human heart can be dark and so there will always be tribal tribal strife there will always be suspicion of the other we are a, we, we we have evolved the coalitional psychology where we view the world as red team versus blue team so not notwithstanding all those caveats is is there a way that we can develop, of course, metaphorically, a vaccine where we take anti-Semitism where it's here to in a hundred years we'll look back and say, my God, we really, we we really resolved that malady of the soul. Is this possible? So you ask me that, and then I think to myself, if I say no, then what am I doing? <laughs> exactly. And if I say yes, then who do I think I am? And in many ways, I think it connects directly to your question to me um, and my response in, in, in how can I not. The understanding that we have a purpose, we have a role to play. And when Jews understand that they have a role to play in humanity, and when we do it together, united, then we at the very least have the possibility of diminishing, of identifying, of combating that virulent, toxic, ever-mutating hatred of Jews. Actually, if I had to tell you what concerns me most, it's when I have a speaking tour on, you know, American campuses and law schools. And when I come to speak about anti-Semitism, I met with Zionists not welcome by Jewish students who tell me, I wish Israel would disappear. Yes. What concerns me the most, actually, is that when we don't understand our own identity, by the way, in an age where everybody gets to self-define as what they choose, everybody gets to self-define except for the Jew or the Zionist. So if you could just maybe, you could be a Jew, just like what you said before about your own upbringing, you could be a Jew, but maybe you could just shed that Zionist pound of flesh. Except that Zionism, apart from the fact that it's a 140 plus year 
national progressive national liberation movement that enabled the return of this indigenous people to our ancestral homeland and so on and so on. Apart from that, it's also integral to the identity of every Jew, whether you like it or not, because our ancestors prayed to return to Zion for thousands of years, whether they were in Ethiopia or Lebanon, Iraq or Paris. That's what they prayed to do, to return to Zion. And, and I think that that is our DNA in many ways. And this makes me actually so sad. And I mentioned the late Rabbi Sachs. This was probably the hardest conversations that we would have were about this. It was about the idea of the differentiation of Rabbi Soloveitchik between a covenant of destiny and a covenant of fate. And by that, I mean, can we as a people only be defined by the outside virulent hate and reminded that we are united only by the enemies of the Jew, whether it's the individual Jew or the Jewish nation state, or can we find a way in this incredible historic moment in time in which we have, I mean, it's a funny time to be saying this, but a sovereign state of Israel and relative safety and security, half of us here and half of us in the rest of the world, can we find a way to opt in to our shared identity, to choose that identity? We've never been at this intersection. So if you ask me, is there a possibility Then I have to look at statistics and say, well, we've never been here before, here at this very moment in time in a 75 year young miracle that is a sovereign state of Israel and with half of us in the rest of the world in relative safety. Here we've never been before. Can we create that network? Because it takes a network to beat one and we sure have a network working against us. If we can connect that network, maybe we stand a chance. Maybe we can, but we can't do it separately. We And I, and I, and I have to say that that mutation of anti-Semitism that has severed or enabled the severing of the connection of Jews to that Zionist pound of flesh, if you will, which you can maybe shed and then not be regarded as the other on your university campus or book club, which you can't join if you're a Zionist, or march in the women's march um, if you're a Zionist, even though all other women are welcome, or actually be protected by diversity. Well, we can talk about this for hours, but I'd like to say equality and not equity, because I think the two are very different. And I don't know how we moved from equality to equity without noticing diversity, equality and inclusion for everybody else, except for the Jew slash Zionist slash supporter of the state of Israel. So finish your point. Yeah, I'm sorry, just to say that I have to have that hope, knowing that it takes action and courage. So I'm. There are many ways by which one can try to implement small steps to try to make the the virus less virulent. So one of the ways, I think, and it's not as though I'm teaching you anything, I'm sure you're well aware of this, is that when you demystify the other through meaningful interactions, suddenly you realize that the other doesn't actually have horns. They have the same desires as you and they have the same humor as you do. Now, in my case, I have seen it in on many many occasions before I became someone you know in the public eye, because I was afforded the 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 fortune of being having Arabic as my mother tongue. Therefore, I wasn't like those other Jews, and therefore that allowed me entry into people's hearts that otherwise might hate the Jew. And so, let me give you just a, a couple of stories that that speak to this. So, in 1990, when I first 
went to pursue my PhD at Cornell, I became friends with a bunch of Arab students because I'm Lebanese and I had an entry point to that social system. We would always hang out together. We'd play soccer together. One of the gentlemen, about two, three weeks after I had uh, gone to Cornell, asks me to meet for coffee, a Muslim student from Lebanon. And okay, so we go for 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 um, for coffee. And then at one point he looks at me, sort of very pensive, and he goes, you know, God, I really, I really like you. And so I looked at him, I said, why? I'm not going to, out of respect for him, although I'm not sure he's worthy of that respect. I won't even mention his name because someone might be watching and know who I'm talking about. And I looked at him and I said, why do you say that as though you're surprised? surprised. Is it, oh, is it because I'm Jewish? He So he kind of paused. He goes, no, but come on, God. But God, you're not a Jew-Jew. I said, no, no, I'm a Jew, 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 Jew. He goes, no, no, come on. You know what I mean? So the only way he could reconcile the hatred that he was exposed to straight out of the womb and the fact that here stood someone who really played soccer super well, was really fun, was really warm and really worthy of your respect and love is to remove my real Jewish identity. So, so this became known within the, the lore of my family as the Juju story, right? Because I wasn't a Juju. So that allowed him at least to somewhat be inoculated against the, the virus. Second quick story, and then I'll, I'll cede the floor to you. Uh, in my engagement in the public eye, I've met many uh, Muslims, some of whom are now critics of Islam. One of whom is Hamid Abdel Samad. I don't know if you know him. His dad is a Egyptian cleric, and then he left Islam, mo uh, moved to uh, Germany, became a best-selling author. He's come on my show a few times, and then he came to Montreal to visit me, uh, and he said, "Can we do? Can we do? Could you come on my show in in Arabic? Uh, the show is called Sandu al Islam, which basically means the box of Islam." I said, "Okay, mm -hmm. let's do it in Arabic." So. So two quick points there. First, as I went into the hotel's place where they were, there were tons of Muslim guys there who you could have thought could have all been there to decapitate me because here's the Yemeni and here's the Saudi. They were all taking selfies with me because we were now united in our shared love of humanistic values and universal values. Plus, I was an Arabic speaker. Plus, the conversation is in Arabic. So somehow that removed my Jew-Jewness. So is this moving forward something that can help? You know, the guys in Gaza don't know that Michal is actually a really lovely person and she's got four kids. And I suspect that there are some Israelis, in all fairness, that thinks that every Arab is a monster who has a suicide vest. It, is this the way forward? Is it? Could it be as simple as that? So, first of all, thank you for sharing those stories. I love them because nothing tells it like like those anecdotal stories. And I'll just share one. Um, after we signed the Abraham Accords in 2020, I got to host the first delegation of influencers in Israel's Knesset, and it was the third night of Hanukkah. And I walked around, I can send you a picture after, with fully garbed um, influencers from the UAE and Bahrain and Egypt, some there officially, some there unofficially, some from countries that we still didn't sign the Abraham Accords with, but we're sort of feeling it out. And I told them as we lit candles for Hanukkah that they were my Hanukkah miracle, that they were my Hanukkah miracle that I will never forget. 
And I shared with them what I said before about the flipped equation or the flipped paradigm from the three no's to the three yeses. And when I said yes to recognition, yes to negotiation, yes to peace, one of them screamed out and he reached out to me today to share how devastated he is by by the news. One of them said, we don't just recognize you, we love you. Now, I'm a practicing Jew. They know who I am. They know that I observe Shabbat. They know that I keep holidays. And I think that if we own our identity and we're Jews, if we're Jews and you can like the Juju, then that is one incredible step forward. And then I'll add to that, including my disappointment because I didn't manage to make this work, that Israel has a lot to still learn. And it's only 75 years young. It's why I insist on saying 75 years young and democracy is messy business as we know. But for example, every single child in this country has to know Arabic. We live in a region that speaks Arabic. It can't be that all of my children have graduated high school and don't speak Arabic. So one of the first things, actually legislative proposals that I tabled while I was in parliament was actually a compulsory Arabic study in every oh, single fantastic. I didn't know that. That's beautiful. And it has to happen. Now, coming from Quebec, we understand the importance. It's beyond language. We understand the importance to see the other. You actually have to be you have to be able to relate to them. It's about cultural understanding and it's about way beyond more than just being able to order a coffee. We both understand that. And so I think that those are the things that we too still have to do. There is a lot more of learning curve. And finally, that last sort of through the anecdotes, ability to sort of uh, touch upon the important point you've made. My daughter, just a little over a year ago, was very badly burned. She's a soldier now. She's enlisted to the army. She was very badly burned on a hike with friends. And we ended up in the hospital for 10 days. And who was treating her was an Arab doctor. That's who received her into Hadassah. Who was treating her were Arab nurses right through and ultra-Orthodox Jewish nurses. And in many ways, when I tell people, you know, if you really want to know what's happening in Israel, go to the ER, just go to the emergency room, do me a favor, go to the emergency room. And what ended up making my daughter cry after 10 days in the hospital was not the severe pain that she was in, and not the terrible bandages that they had to keep taking off and apply. But the thought that in the hospital at our most vulnerable, everybody was treating everybody in the same way. Doctors, nurses, orderlies. It didn't matter if you were a Jewish patient, an Orthodox patient, a Muslim patient, a Christian patient. And that is the potential of the incredible, and I really, I insist on it, miraculous everyday reality of Israel that you can only know when you walk around. You walk around Jerusalem, you walk around malls, you walk around hospitals, just because that's when we're at our most vulnerable. And only then you understand exactly what you've just touched upon of the imperative to know the other, to insist to know the other. And we're making headways. It hasn't been easy, but there's consistent existential threatening moments of war that really confuse things for regular people walking around the street just trying to coexist. But we're making headways, God. 
Well, uh, first, let me say, I'm so sorry to hear about what happened to your daughter. Is she out of the woods? She's, is she all good? She's okay. Thank you. Thank God. She's. This is over a year ago, and she's fine, functioning, has a big scar, which somebody told her men are going to find very attractive. She shouldn't worry. Exactly. It shows that she's lived a life of richness. So that's good. That's sexy. Uh, I just wanted to say that the person who connected us said that you are incredible and I need to speak to you. Boy, did she undersell you because you are truly a remarkable woman. Uh, of course, I could keep you here for another seven hours, but you probably have another 25,000 things to do rather than sit and speak to some professor in Canada. But thank you so much for making time. Uh, please stay in touch. Bon courage, as we say in French. Uh, may hopefully one day it be the case that you and I don't need to have this conversation because people recognize their shared humanity, recognize that the Middle East has such a culture of richness, of hospitality, of, of all sorts of values that if we can get rid of some of this tribal stuff, it would flourish in ways that are unimaginable. And uh, if you want to add anything else, otherwise, thank you so much for coming. Just thank you. Really, thank you for having this conversation and just to ask that you keep us in your thoughts and prayers in the coming days and weeks as things really challenge us beyond the pale. And remember that, you know, we may seem like a tough bunch and very resilient because we have to be, um, but we need you and uh, all of you, whoever it is that's listening, to know that our shared humanity is indeed what binds us together. Thank you, Michal. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye officially offline. Cheers. Take care. Thank you.